Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast on American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Van Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, the editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Zavarian, a reporter at the Washington Free Vegan. And Aaron, how are you doing this week? I'm good. I have been traveling a lot and very busy. A few weeks ago, actually, I was in Palo Alto amid all the Stanford Law crap. But I wasn't there to be to, to report on Stanford Law. I was there to attend a seminar that may as well have been titled How the Deep State Took Out Nixon. And indeed, one of the seminar participants later wrote an essay of that with that title. But so, yeah, I haven't actually I haven't actually seen the as what's what's the it's what's called the it's called How the Deep State Took Down Nixon in Compact. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, no, but I was I was there. Basically, the seminar was run by like a, a top aide to Nixon, a guy on Nixon's legal defense team, and then a professor who FOIA'd a lot of the the Nixon tapes and, and responsible sure. for a lot of them being declassified. And when you look at all the stuff that's emerged in just the past decade, you realize the kind of conventional narrative of Watergate in which the journalists were the good guys just doing their job. And Nixon was this evil maniac who like abused his power and, and was, you know, engaged in some crazy domestic spying campaign against citizens. I mean, it's, it's, it's not totally wrong, but a lot of it is wrong and it's significantly more complicated and less black and white. I mean, the main revelations that, that stayed with me were that the, the, prosecution and the judge, the special prosecutors and the judge in that case, basically just engaged in outright secret collusion to help the impeachment of Nixon, which has all just come to light in like the past decade and engaged in sort of flagrant violations of due process, ex parte meetings, all sorts of things you're just not supposed to do in order to get Nixon kind of at any cost. All of which is to say, going to that seminar and reading through these documents that have never before been disclosed does make you wonder, hmm, is there maybe something to the deep state? You know, are we, you know, <laughs> like, 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 and I you know, mean, all look. the people involved in Watergate were like on the CIA's payroll in some way. I mean, there's, there's a lot of suggestive things about it. It does, does make you wonder what exactly our intelligence agencies are up to. I don't know. So I guess that's a that's a good segue to talk a little bit about our topic today, which is which is disinformation. I guess disinformation and the deep state. But we're gonna we're gonna start with disinformation, which is obviously sort of the electoral meme du jour, the sort of idea that the the internet or certain disfavored political actors you through using the internet, Trump, Russia, you pick it, spread misinformation, disinformation, and other falsehoods meant to shape the political narrative. And this is a huge threat to our democracy. It's, you know, I think clearly very important to sustained attack on the legitimacy of the Trump presidency. But I think there's also an interesting question of the, the institutions which are fostering that narrative, the, both public actors in the form of the career bureaucracy and the private actors in the form of the big tech social media firms that are going along with them. Our guest wrote a very interesting essay about all of this, which is what prompted us to invite him on. Before we introduce him, though, why don't you talk a little about what your thoughts are going to this conversation, Aaron? Yeah, so so one thing that has always struck me is that the DEI and disinformation industries have a lot of very obvious parallels. And I think the parallels are helpful for understanding part of what is so pernicious, in my view, about the kind of disinformation meme. 
one parallel is that they both employ a class of professional activists whose livelihood depends on kind of the pretense of an emergency, racism and transphobia in the case of DEI, fake news, you know, or Russian social media accounts in the case of disinformation. Because of that, both kind of have a vested interest in defining the emergency as broadly as possible. So you see the DEI apparatchiks broaden the definition of racism to encompass everything under the sun. And you see the disinformation folks, you know, come up with terms like malinformation, you know, which refers to information that is true, but likely to have a bad effect stripped of its context, such as fueling vaccine hesitancy, right? If you publish a true statement about vaccine trial data, but it might have the effect of, you know, helping the Alex Berenson's of the world. Ah, that's malinformation, which kind of gets subsumed under the rubric of disinformation. And then finally, you know, this is an obvious one, but both of these things really are trying to regulate quote unquote harmful speech, you know, emotionally harmful in the case of DEI, kind of civically harmful in the case of disinformation. I once you see these parallels, I think it's hard to unsee them. And I'm curious how that kind of analysis should should inform both our just our, our kind of gauge of how troubling the disinformation meme is, and then also maybe sort of what the policy responses to it should be, assuming you think that this kind of disinformation apparatus does merit a policy response. That's my take. Yeah, so you know, I'm I'm of two minds on the topic. I mean, you know, on, on on the one hand, I'm sympathetic to your your view, which is like, and and then more generally the view that trying to label certain thoughts as intrinsically dangerous, certain arguments intrinsically dangerous, and having a coalescence of public and private unelected officials control those thoughts is is pretty dystopian. And on the other hand, you know, so our our guest starts his essay talking about drawing parallel between today and. And Joe McCarthy, at my first chance, was well, you know, but like McCarthy was on to some stuff. Like he wasn't, he went a little out over his skis, let's be clear. But like there were a lot of communists in the American government at the time. And and indeed, you know, the the FBI in the in in the 50s and the 60s were dealing with real domestic threats. And we can sort of argue that the set of threats that are currently in vogue are perhaps overstated. And I think that's true to some extent. There's a broader principle question of, okay, but like, let's say there really is a, there really is a, a credible extremist threat of this form. How should the government respond to it? If disinformation is a real problem, how should we think about it? Because I think you can't just sort of dismiss it out of hand. So a good guy to discuss all of that with is our guest, Jake Siegel, the senior writer at Tablet and co-host a manifesto, a podcast. Jacob, welcome to Institutionalized. Thanks for having me. So, so we like to. You, you wrote a long essay in Tablet. Why this? It was a very good essay about about this sort of disinformation complex. Which probably wanted to have you on, but I sort of. I, I, I want to start. We really start with sort of a provocative question. So let me ask, as as I, as I sort of framed in my opening, shouldn't we be worried about disinformation and misinformation? Like, is that not a legitimate concern for people to have? What do you What do you say to sort of the the steel man of the other side? Well, let me start with addressing your point about, hey, wasn't McCarthy onto something? Because that was a, a fairly common refrain from people on the right. And I think that it, it reflects a, a lack of understanding about what, what actually came out in the Venona transcripts, for one, and also about the 
effects of McCarthyism on American political life. So, you know, you said, hey, there, there really were a lot of communists in the U.S. government. Do you have a sense of how many there were? I can name four or five prominent cases off the top of my head. I can name, I can name a couple of elevated figures, and I can name people like the Rosenbergs who are passing secrets. Right. Very consequential stuff with the Rosenbergs in particular. Consequential not only because they were passing nuclear secrets, but also because Al they were- Alter Hiss, Harry, the guy at the IMF. And all, all of these people were, we now know, were actual Soviet agents, right? Harry so the, this, yeah, yeah. Is, so the, this is true. The answer is about 200 from what we know. And, but if you, if you paid attention, and that's around 200 is a number that comes from sort of bouncing the Venona transcripts, were, which were these de, what's the word for it, decrypted transcripts from the Soviet government to their American spy network. And there are actually tens of thousands of these transcripts that came through. They only managed to decrypt, I think it's just less than 3,000. So, you know, potentially- they, 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 they broke the Soviet one-time pads at only a little bit. And only for like a brief period of time. Right. So it's a, it's a fraction. And they, they also needed to vent. Once you had decrypted these transcripts, you then needed to identify the people who even decrypted were still being referred to by code names. Right. So first they had to be decrypted. Then they had to be passed on to the FBI, which at the time was running the sort of human intelligence piece of this. Anyway, long story short, if you were paying attention to what McCarthy was saying, and to the sort of McCarthyite political faction of American politics at the time, you probably would have assumed the number was much larger than 200. So McCarthy was talking about General Marshall, for instance, being a, a communist. So there's, a, there's something puerile about this sort of right-wing attempt to recuperate the reputation of McCarthy, and it, it fails to understand that the actual legacy of McCarthyism was to empower the anti-anti-communist tendency on the American left, which had been quite marginal prior to that. Should read Richard Gid Power's book on this, on basically the history of anti-communism in America, and Gid Powers is, you know, a, a, an anti-communist himself. And in writing this history, he is sympathetic to the American anti-communist movement, which he analyzes as being made up of a number of strains. And one of the things he focuses on in this book is the way in which McCarthyism really created this sort of broad, popular movement among liberals, not just the far left where it had previously resided. He created a kind of notion of anti-communism as being fascist adjacent among American liberals that had a very powerful and deforming effect on American political life. I think we can all agree that, you know, anti-communism was a, a generally positive political tendency in America. So delegitimating anti-communism was not a good thing for one. But more, more to the point in the di disinformation conversation and talking about the deep state, what also ended up happening is that the notion of a vast, amorphous communist conspiracy, global communist conspiracy that 
absurd distinctions and treated, you know, technical matters like how many communists are actually in the government as a, a kind of pedantic exercise. Who did that really empower? Okay, so if in a sort of cultural or ideological sense, it empowered the liberal anti-anti-communists who could depict all anti-communism as being a sort of species of fascism. The other group that it empowered was the security agencies and the U.S. intelligence agencies who took that power and ran with it as far and as fast as they could and gave themselves more and more unaccountable power. So to be clear, the, you know, I think I spend about 500 words on, I don't know, maybe it's a thousand words on McCarthy in a, a 13,000 plus word essay. And I am really talking much more about the allegorical figure of McCarthy and, and the way in which McCarthyism had figured in the liberal imagination than I am trying to adjudicate the particulars of you know Cold War era communist infiltration. But since we're on the subject, and I'm happy to discuss it, that's the real legacy. The real legacy of the secrecy, which is what McCarthyism relied on, was opacity, reference to secret documents, and it was part of a larger culture. Here's, here's something incredible about the Venona transcripts. You know that Truman wasn't informed of them at the time? When the Venona transcripts were being decrypted, the president of the United States, who, by the way, Charles McCarthy also accused of being a communist, Truman was also part <laughs> of the, 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 the global communist conspiracy. He was not informed. Why wasn't he informed of them? It's a very bizarre, convoluted story that basically comes down to, you know, bureaucratic turf war stuff. It comes down to yeah, bureaucratic cause, leverage. Because he had beef with the FBI and the FBI had beef no, with him. No, no, it wasn't the FBI. No, it wasn't, actually. It wasn't Hoover who kept it from him. It was Bradley who kept it from him. Read Daniel Patrick Moynihan's book, Secrecy, whatever it is, The American Experience. But what Moynihan shows, having worked on, obviously, the Congressional Commission into this and writing what is probably the definitive book on the history of security, or excuse me, secrecy as a, an administrative form of administrative rule, in America, what he shows is that it actually wasn't the FBI, which is what you would assume because they were, you know, it was so hostile between him and Hoover. Anyway, without getting too far into that, the, the real legacy is that these agencies, which, you know, grew into vast, opaque, self-contained shadow government leviathans during the Cold War, and who, not incidentally, continually got the Cold War wrong at critical junctures, right? So by the mid-80s, they were predicting that the Soviet economy, this is the CIA I'm talking about, right? The, mm. the sort of consensus CIA analysis in the mid-80s was that Soviet economy was very strong. And, you know, nobody, nobody at the high levels, except for Moynihan, he wasn't in an intelligence agency, but Moynihan, based on open source reporting, based on his diplomatic contacts and experiences. Moynihan, I think as early as the late 70s, was saying, give it time, the Soviet Union is going to collapse, just looking at the sort of fundamentals of the political economy, not even getting into ideologically, it'll collapse under its own ideological contradictions. He was talking about political economy stuff. So this is what Moynihan was saying. The CIA, on the other hand, was saying, 
you know, we, we have to prepare ourselves for another century of the, right. the Soviet Union. So with all that power, and I'm not saying McCarthyism is the primary vehicle for, for growing the power of the intelligence agencies. Obviously, that's not the case. But secrecy and exaggeration and sort of opaque, this combination of bureaucratic opacity and secrecy and bombast and alarmism and threat hyping, which McCarthyism directly fed into, is part of what allowed these intelligence agencies to grow so large, so powerful, so unaccountable. And I think that in the contemporary disinformation industry, A, but also in the effect that those intelligence agencies have had on a contemporary political life in America, you know, disseminating and credentialing the Steele dossier, producing, you know, John Brennan producing a, an overtly politicized intelligence community assessment in 2017 that, that you know, is essentially a reprise of the WMD analysis that led to the Iraq war. All of this is an indication that it is not to anyone's benefit, neither the right nor the left, not to any American's benefit to hand so much unaccountable power to these agencies and that therefore we should be wary of allowing our essential political sympathies, whether it's with anti-communism or with, you know, a, a sympathy for the difficulty in dealing with the sort of chaoticness of the modern information environment and in, coupled with an awareness that, yeah, of course, Russia is trying to meddle in the American political process as it's trying to do in many other countries as well. And as the U.S. itself has tried to do, we should be wary of allowing those sympathies to turn into licenses right. for these agencies. So, so you've, I think, done a very good job in that intro answer of establishing, one, that the intelligence agencies have been wrong about a lot of stuff, a lot of very consequential stuff. And two, that the intelligence agencies have seen their power really grow over the past half century in potentially alarming ways. So now let's kind of zoom forward. And I know it's a big question and we want to get into the deeper sort of political theory stuff in a bit, but, but just walk us through like a, a quick capsule history of how these intelligence agencies got into the disinformation business kind of, you know, from 2016 on. Well, where this really starts is not in 2016, but in earlier theories of warfare and particularly in hybrid warfare and what's called, you know, sometimes fourth generation warfare, information warfare, which had been percolating for, you know, some time, but become really coalesce and become sort of the thing that defense establishment people, not only in the US, but across NATO are talking about in 2014, and this is when three things happen in 2014, Russia invades Crimea, there's the Euromaidan movement in Ukraine that the US backs and, and Russia opposes, and then there is the ISIS capture of Mosul and declaration of its caliphate in Mosul. And in each one of those cases, the military campaign was accompanied by a social media campaign and a sort of broad messaging and, and what's sometimes referred to as influence operations, sometimes referred to as information operations, have very similar meanings 
an effort to essentially, you know, demoralize one's enemies, convince them not to fight, and also persuade sort of spectators, attract new recruits, capture public opinion through what's effectively, you know, a form of outward facing propaganda. This ties into this theory of warfare called hybrid war theory, which relates to a a doctrine inside Russia that a lot is made of called the Germansov Doctrine, which is essentially making the case, and a similar case is being made by the fourth generation warfare people in America, that the information environment is now the most important domain to capture. And, you know, in doctrinal terms, in the American military, we talk about key terrain, right? Like, so if you want to capture this large piece of land, first you dominate the key terrain. Classically speaking, like you go get the high ground, right? You get the hill from which you can put down suppressive fire and gives you a tactical advantage. So in a much broader sense, the internet and the information environment becomes the key terrain in warfare. At the same time, the other conceptual premise of hybrid warfare One is that the internet is the key terrain. The other is that there's no longer any real distinction between the foreign battlefield and the home front, because if the internet is the key terrain and the internet is borderless and instantly available to anybody with a high-speed connection, then what do these distinctions really amount to? So you have hybrid warfare as the sort of foundational idea and other very similar related ideas, some of which I've named percolating at the same time. The intelligence agencies pick up on this. And at the same time that they pick up on this, there is this sudden, and I would say another good sort of frame of reference for this is Martin Gurry's book that he published in 2014. What is it? The Revolt of the Elites Against the Elites. The Uh, the revolt of the public. There you go. Yeah, I always get that wrong. You know, because basically what you're looking at is one, a theory of warfare, but that theory of warfare is really being informed by what's actually a much larger, even more profound digital transformation that's occurring, that's undermining elite consensus across the board and is leading to institutional elites you know, especially in a country like the U.S. that had had strong institutions and strong institutional elites, they're taking on this kind of siege mentality as the internet, which they had once promoted as a, a force for democratization, is now falling under the control of these populist insurgents. Then the actual populist movements begin, you know, Brexit, Donald Trump. And when this happens, and Donald Trump is, you know, during his campaign, making some statements that legitimately lead people to believe he might withdraw from, you know, Article 5 of the the NATO charter. And he's doing some things that are, seem, you know, they're all within the proper domain of politics, I would argue, but they're unsettling to intelligence professional, professionals and security professionals for reasons that are understandable. So you have hybrid warfare now interacting with this larger revolt of the public, interacting with these actual populist movements. And the net effect 
is that the intelligence agencies, which are led by political figures, John Brennan is effectively, who heads the CIA under the Obama administration, is effectively a political appointee. They begin now to interpret domestic political movements that are pro-Trump or critical of what you might call sort of establishment politics or neoliberal politics, to use a word that the kids like, that these actors who are engaged in those kinds of critiques can now, according to the intelligence agencies themselves, be understood to be, I I shouldn't say the intelligence agencies that broadly, according to what becomes a kind of new top-down mandate within the intelligence agencies, the FBI and CIA in particular, that this kind of, these political actors can be understood to be in league with the Russian disinformation campaign that is aimed at destabilizing and undermining the American political process. And, And let me give you one example of how sort of flimsy this framework is. I think I mentioned the 2017, January 2017, Brennan, as the head of the CIA, puts out this ICA, Intelligence Community Assessment. And it's supposed to be, or, or the intelligence community broadly puts out this ICA, because at the time, we don't know that it's actually Brennan who's riding this horse. And this is supposed to reflect, it's supposed to be a multi-agency assessment that reflects you know, a, a consensus view within the, the many intelligence agencies. And this is the document that enters into the official record the idea that Vladimir Putin had not only intervened in the 2016 election, but had done so explicitly to support Donald Trump. And if you read that document and, and you read the appendix, it has a, a lengthy appendix that's like full of RT articles from 2012. I mean, it is so flimsy. It's so amateurishly put together. And yet it didn't matter. It did the job. The press ate it up. It became the sort of consensus. Oh, yes, this we can, we, anytime, you know, the Washington Post or whomever wants to make this case, they can say, well, hey, this was the ICA. This is the, the intelligence community assessment. We later find out that it was, Obama appointee John Brennan, who actually ran the whole show, who pushed this through, who silenced dissenting voices within the intelligence community, Russia experts who said, no, actually, Putin preferred for Clinton to win because she was more predictable and Trump was a wild man. So this lays the foundation for this larger war against disinformation. Yeah, one one quick thing before Charles asks a question, I just want to flag, there's another important dynamic going on here that you discuss in your essay, which is that as the war on terror is kind of winding down, at least in its Iraq and Afghanistan manifestations, you suddenly have this massive kind of military industrial NGO complex that's kept all this money going into it. And now what do they do? Right? That some of it is just the dynamic of, you know, NGOs and bureaucracies need something to justify the money and the thing they'd had was starting to come to a close. So this was a convenient pivot point. Yeah. And, you know, even less cynically, perhaps, though it's effectively the same thing, they have now internalized the worldview. They have this massive hammer 
and everything is a nail to them. And it's very easy to translate, you know, to sort of earnestly translate this set of skills and this approach that's been developed in counterterrorism onto a new domain, you know, in the United States. So, so I guess I want to, I want to, I want to abstract out a little bit because I'm talking about sort of the the bigger principles here. So, one one way of telling the story is that there's that there's a, a decline in accountability and that sort of unobserved components of the broader bureaucracy have accrued a great deal of power to themselves, and now they're exercising to protect their interests. And another way to tell the story is, again, just sort of play devil's advocate. There is a way that the modern system works. It's relatively successful, stable, and conducive to well-being. It's built upon semi-democratic, semi-non-democratic, expertocratic function. Generally, you want people knowing what they, you want people to know what they do in charge. And then after like Donald Trump poses a threat to that balance. So you have a great quote from Chuck Schumer saying the intelligence community is going to get back at him or something like that. But I'm sure what Schumer is thinking in that context is like, you know, who is this clown the intelligence community, the guys are actually either the adults in the room. So, so what do you what do you say to somebody who makes that argument? Just specifically on the Schumer quote first, I think what he's actually saying is, why would you threaten these guys? So it's it's a bit too generous to say that Schumer was saying the adults won't tolerate a clown. What Schumer was actually saying is the the guys with all the means to punish you behind the scenes won't tolerate a threat to their own institutional position. But I think that to your larger point, I'd be willing to have a conversation about how much unaccountable power could be tolerated if it was competent. But I don't know where you're getting the idea that that it's competent. It's it's it is historically catastrophically incompetent, which is how we end up with a Donald Trump becoming so popular in the first place. So, okay, in a, insofar as I have political principles, I tend to prefer self-government. I prefer openness and transparency, but I'm willing to entertain the idea. And I, and I can certainly see where certain institutions need to operate with a degree of secrecy. And, you know, I have worked in some of those institutions and I understand that, but it, it needs to be constrained. It can't become a general organizing principle in a democratic society or that society is no longer democratic. So I, I you know, in short, I, though I have a preference for openness and, and I think self-government is impossible without openness. I, I could, I could be persuaded by a more competent set of conniving bureaucrats who, who are capable of producing more for the common good. I don't think that that's, not only do I, I not think that that's what these people do. I don't think they're trying to do that. I think that they're generally self-interested and it's not simply that they have in their effort to produce a generally you know salutary political and economic system for most americans that they failed i think that the secrecy itself has made it less and less necessary for them to try in ways that are probably many of these ways are invisible even to them you know it's an effect of the system 
so but I, I, I guess I want to, I want to stay on this theme for just a minute because I think it, it ties into the sort of, you know, the, the, the deeper, the, the deep state conversation, which is, so I think a lot about two examples. I think a lot about one is between the end of World War II and basically 2000, turn of the millennium. The Japanese government was basically was was essentially run by this is controversial. Was essentially run by an entity called the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, MITI, which is just like totally innocuous bureaucratic authority that accrued a great deal of bureaucratic power to itself and ended up exercising arguably undue prerogative over most of the sort of formal institutions of Japanese society. The same thing happens, by the way, in New York City. Like this is the story of Robert Moses, right? Robert Moses is like an unelected bureaucrat who sort of accrues power from within the context of the bureaucracy. So I guess I guess you know part of what's interesting to me here, I want to talk about accountability. But part of what's interesting to me here is it seems like this form of government pops up in lots of diffuse places and particularly in the post-World War II era. So I wonder the extent to which it's sort of, you know, you you, you posit the distinction between like accountability versus actual direct democratic self-rule. I wonder the extent to which the latter is a possibility anymore versus, you know, basically accountability for the bureaucracy as what we can, what, what we can accept today. Yeah, I think that's a good question. And I, I don't have a, I don't have an easy answer, but I, I think that's a good question. I, I don't know enough about the Japanese situation to say anything about that. It sounds interesting and I'll look into it. I do know something about Robert Moses and, you know, I think you and I probably share a similar point of view about Absolutely. Robert Moses. And, but I, I think where we would differ is that I don't see Robert Moses as emblematic of the modern bureaucratic type. He's antithetical to the modern bureaucratic type. He's driven by a singular, you know, he's a sort of, He's, he's anti-bureaucratic, even if he's technically operating within a bureaucracy, he's anti-bureaucratic in the sense he's a, he's a great man. You know, he is, he is your great man theory of, of his, history rather than your, your bureaucratic theory. But it is still the case, as you point out, that he was not only unaccountable, he was contemptuous of the idea of being accountable and you know, Moses did some very good things. He did some things that I think were not so good. But on the whole, he, his legacy is very impressive, I think that. And so I think that there's certainly, there are two arguments to be had. I, you have to separate the normative argument from the sort of merely observational argument. On the normative argument, how do we prefer to have our system of governance arranged I've stated my preference. You know, I prefer openness and self-government, but I don't know that it really matters all that much to me in the end. On the other question of what do we actually have? What is the thing we're looking at now? I would agree with you. It's not at all obvious to me that the kind of openness and self-government that I associate with the most vital periods of American life can simply be reconstituted. That might be a, a bygone moment. And, um, you know, I, I certainly don't have the answers for how we would get back to it. But yeah, I don't take for granted that it's as simple as defund the CIA or destroy the administrative state or whatever. So I think it's a good question. I, I don't have a, I don't really, don't really have an answer. Earlier, you said that the the internet had kind of erased the distinction between 
foreign and kind of domestic counterinsurgency techniques, right? The thought is, well, if the internet's global, you know, then these, these distinctions no longer really matter. You know, everyone and everything is potentially a threat. It seems to me that there's been a similar line blurring with private internet platforms, right? Where the, the very distinction between government and private actors has been kind of faced by these partnerships. You have a lot in your essay about all the very, and the Twitter files have helped expose this, how DHS and other spooks will just be constantly reaching out to these platforms saying, censor this, censor that. You talk about sort of the, the, the implications of that dynamic and whether the, the first sort of talk about the role of private, allegedly private platforms in this whole complex. And then second, the degree to which they can even be considered private. Or, and whether the public-private distinction is even meaningful in, in this age. So on the first point, I, that claim that the there's no longer a meaningful distinction between the foreign and domestic is not my claim. I'm, yeah, yeah. So in sure. particular, I was quoted, this was a broad view within the sort of upper echelons of the defense mm-hmm. establishment. I quote specifically... Michael Lumpkin, who is the head of the Global Engagement Center, which is the State Department agency, Obama created, essentially a recreated to run the war against disinformation. So this is the primary counter disinformation agency. And Lumpkin, who headed it, who pre- prior to heading the primary counter disinformation agency, was heading the previous iteration of the GEC, where it was a counter-terrorist, counter-messaging agency, just to show you how direct the continuity is between the war on terror and the war on disinformation. Lumpkin says in these talks in 2016 that, you know, basically he's being, counter-terrorism is being hamstrung by these antiquated privacy laws in the U.S. that make distinctions between American citizens and, and foreign actors. So, it relates directly to the second part of your question, because in the mission statement of the GEC, the primary hub, the, the government agency running the war against disinformation, explicitly from the very beginning, they are talking about this being a whole of society effort, and they are talking about bringing in tech company CEOs, you know, in, in the standard sort of bureaucratic language that's used in these things. But what they're really talking about is a national mobilization, a war effort. You know, this is something that is like a, a representative feature of modernity, right? The national mobilization. We've had it since the 19th century. Ernst Junger is writing about it in the context of the First World War. And it's still a feature of modernity and, and of industrial society. So that may be changing. And what it means is, integrating all of the various power centers of the society under a single common cause and under the state, because it's always under the state. So you have two things happening, which are not necessarily so easy to reconcile. On the one hand, you have the merger of the government agencies with the ostensibly private tech companies. So you have starting in 2017, the FBI installs its own task force inside of Twitter. DHS installs its own agents inside of Twitter. 
Then on the unofficial side, Twitter's top executives are now pulling directly from the American National Security Establishment. The FBI actually ends up paying Twitter $3.5 million cumulatively to do the work of censoring the information and monitoring the information they want censored. And, and as you point out, yeah, we know this because of the Twitter files. And one unfortunate effect of that has been that companies like Google, which have taken this stuff even further, actually have gotten off the hook. But the this this merger between governmental power and the communications infrastructure, which is also now increasingly becoming the perceptual infrastructure in the United States is not limited to Twitter and Facebook. It didn't begin with Trump, though Trump sort of engendered this phase shift. It was, you know, Trump was rocket fuel in this system. But what happened during Trump was that you had a sort of top-down pressure and a bottom-up pressure that converged on this broad whole of society consensus. The top-down pressure was, as I mentioned, the intelligence agencies installing their own agents, the White House directly pressuring these companies to censor certain people, sending, you know, they set up essentially a Slack channel between the government agencies and the social media platforms. So they had DMs set up, right? So they could just say, you know, kill this guy's account, kill that guy's account. Why is this guy still on your platform? You have that kind of top down pressure. At the same time, you have a bottom up pressure from the sort of mid level nomenclatura who have internalized the prerogatives of the intelligence agencies as the great sort of moral cause of their time. And this comes back, Aaron, to what you said at the beginning about the convergence or the essential affinities between mm -hmm. the DEI infrastructure and the dis counter disinformation infrastructure. And, and look, I, people should go read the essay, A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century. 13 ways of looking at disinformation in tablet because I tend to rant when I talk about these things and in writing, I am very controlled and I say exactly what I want to say. So this is commentary on the essay, sure. you know, but w one of the things I, I get into in the essay is that um, the next step in the counter disinformation establishment is to start to regulate for therapeutic harms, which by the way, I say the next step. I mean, the next sort of great, it's already begun. It's already happening. There's already an elision between Russian disinformation harming national security and racism or incorrect gender pronouns harming the body politic. This has already happened. It's already embedded in governmental documents. It's already embedded in the safety policies of these social media platforms. So the sort of mid-level... Facebook employee, Twitter employee, Google employee has internalized the idea that bureaucratic, undemocratic, bureaucratic control, whether it's security agency control or just private technocratic control or nonprofit progressive technocratic control, whatever, that that is the proper means of administering public spaces. So the the public-private merger inside these companies is happening on all of these different levels 
at once. And the effect is, it is quite hard to, to come back from. It's, it's very hard to see how you undo this without reformatting the fundamental infrastructure of the internet. So I want to I want to I want to move to uh, I think we want to move to closing thoughts in a little bit. But before we do that, I want to I want to actually jump on the last point. I, one of the one of the points that you make is that all of this existed in the context of the shift to the internet age, right? That that you know, and 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 this is you know we we had this sort of vision of the internet in the 1990s as this sort of pure libertarian space in which state power will to to control information will finally be stymied and in some senses the opposite has happened you talk a little bit about ai as a tool for facilitating propaganda how do you how do you think about the role of the internet as sort of an infrastructural component in all of in all of this sorry repeat the the, the last uh... how do you how do you think about the role of the internet as a component of the broader narrative that you're telling well first i want to say that i saw some of elon musk's interview on Tucker Carlson. I'm, I'm very flattered that he obviously read the essay and decided to essentially, you know, to, to restate some of my ideas on this stuff. So thank you, Mr. Musk. And I'm glad to have you as a reader. We really hope he listens. Elon Musk. I'm sure he's That's listening. Aaron. I'm sure he's listening. I know he's, him and Aaron are Twitter buddies. So yeah. I think that the whole story is the internet, basically. You know, disinformation is a weird, confusing set of sort of bureaucratic responses and symptoms. And the real thing is it's all the internet. You know, it's the it's just the Gutenberg printing press. And we're trying to the the you know, the way in which disinformation does describe something real, even if it's fantastically luridly exaggerated, is in the way that it it sort of distills the symptomatic elements of the internet destroying the previous safety and comfort of elite institutional consensus, while at the same time destabilizing the individual as a subject who had emerged out of the sort of the, the social and political affective experience of the post print world. There's a whole world system that comes out of the printing press, which is different in its way than the world system, you know, this sort of iconographic world system. And the digital is going to have, is already having the same effect. I, I think that the, the response from the U.S. government to its own loss of authority and prestige has been to identify, and I, I say the U.S. government, I should say that the response to the U.S. government and its adjacent, adjacent entities in the United States power structure. So the federal bureaucracy is the sort of broadly speaking, academic, billionaire funded expert class in the United States. All of them have looked at the loss of their own power and prestige and decided that that is the fault of a kind of demonic possession of the internet by these dark and evil forces. And so therefore, if only they could purge those forces, they could recapture that prestige and authority. But it's not possible. They, it, and the reason why they can't 
recapture that authority is not just because they're incompetent in an objective sense, right? Because there was always, there have always been incompetent elites. They may be singularly historically incompetent. I think that that's true, but it's not incompetence itself that delegitimizes them. It is the attempt to, to, you know, put the ocean back in a bottle that delegitimizes them. They, they, not only do they look ridiculous in their efforts to do this, but they have created a very brittle system that requires them to control a force that they deliberately made uncontrollable because they wanted a globalized surveillance-based internet. And so you can't get it back to where it was simply by demonizing Trump supporters and casting them as domestic insurgents and shutting down discord. It's not, you're not going to get back to the position that you lost by doing that. If we had wiser, more competent elites, they would recognize that they, A, need to come to terms with the internet and B, need to try and, in a contractual transactional sense, provide people with things that they value so that there is some durability to their mandate. And it's not simply coercive and based on the brute force of opaque bureaucratic entities. So yeah, it's all the internet. We still don't know exactly what the internet is. We're still figuring that out. It's, but it's, it's clearly something that is too powerful in its way. Everybody kind of agrees that it's too powerful. Everybody will acknowledge with a, with a different valence, each with their own particular bias, everybody will acknowledge that the internet is too powerful, right? It's either too powerful because dangerous vaccine deniers and deranged white nationalist Trump supporters have taken over. It's too powerful because it's being used as a, a giant surveillance platform and it's destroying privacy and individual autonomy. So every, you know, Elon thinks AI is dangerous and, and we need to have these checks on AI. Everybody has their own reason for thinking that there's something about the digital that's become uncontrollable and existentially dangerous, but nobody wants to relinquish their own stake in it because everybody is vested in it in their own way. And that's, that's the problem. Why don't we uh, do some closing thoughts, Aaron? What's what's your takeaway from the conversation? And you know, I'll sort of all, but before anything else, I'll, I'll just echo Jacob's recommendation. Then we we'll go read the essay because in some senses we've done commentary. What is what is an excellent essay? Which you can find it at tabletmag, tabletmag.com, tabletmag.com. But Aaron, what are your what are your thoughts coming from the conversation? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a lot here. I'll I'll just conclude with this on Jacob's final point about the internet being akin to the Gutenberg printing press and perhaps even a more apocryphal transformation in a lot of ways. You know, historians tend to agree that the printing press caused a lot of disruption, including religious warfare. And I don't think that people could have really known that at the time of the printing press's invention, or just how much destruction it would cause. On the other hand, you know, after a period of brutal warfare, eventually you did get the case of Westphalia and a kind of 
continent-wide, I don't want to say peace, but a kind of modus vivendi or, or a set of new new norms that did stabilize continental Europe relative to what had been going on for the past century, two centuries. And that's just to say that just because things seem really dark now and there's no obvious answer to some of the dilemmas posed by the internet doesn't mean that we won't muddle through and eventually converge on, I think, a, if not wonderful equilibrium, that at least an equilibrium of some sort that is not, you know, unlivable or terrible. I think the question is how much chaos instruction there has to be to get there. Or on the other hand, right, that the, the specter of the internet and, and this kind of and its influence and control by by government bureaucrats, the other possibility is, you know, maybe there won't be that much chaos in this kind of transformation to the digital age, but there will be a lot of kind of authoritarian overreach whose costs we won't really know until the, the transformation is completed and the new equilibrium is reached. So, you know, and I think there's a way of looking at that insight that's really scary, right? Oh, crap, it could get really bad. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But there's another way of looking at it, which is, you know, things do tend to work themselves out. And we probably, if I had to guess, you know, the, the, the trends that Jacob is talking about will not usher in a kind of permanent dark age enforced by digital totalitarianism. But I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, look, I think the trend is towards unaccountable government and 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 towards bureaucratic formation. I I would sort of to go way back to Robert Moses and sort of contest Jacob's characteristic characterization of Robert Moses is different from. I mean, look, let me rephrase. The the case of Robert Moses is that he did good stuff, whereas today's bureaucracy does bad stuff. I think that's a you know a, a substance level case that I could buy. But the reality is that you know Moses operated by making himself a creature of the you know, wrapping himself in the bureaucracy, but exercising power, both exercising power outside of formal democratic institutions, but also using the deniability of being outside formal democratic institutions in order to exercise more power. He was above reproach because he was apolitical, a completely contrived concept of the you know mid twentieth century that no longer, luckily, no longer attains. But you know, I think that. So I alluded, I alluded to to the Japanese, the MIDI, the, the Japanese agency. A friend of mine who runs the review Substack reviewed a book about that MIDI, the Japanese Miracle by Thomas Johnson. This isn't my plug. I might plug that later too. And which makes the point that like, look, you know, this bureaucratic system of government is, is an effective solution to the problem of basically like legibility, ruler legibility that, that, that. You know, if, if if you're trying to avoid being different systems of government, is solutions to the problem of trying to avoid being deposed, and contemporary bureaucracy is a solution to the problem of a solution to the problem through avoiding being noticed or identified. So I think in some senses there's there, there there is clearly a very large, powerful locus of power in the United States and in many liberal democracies, which are exercising that same sort of you know deniability that people like Moses did, people like Jacob Hooper did. Yeah, I don't think this necessarily goes away. And I'm, you know, per per the question that I asked Jacob earlier, I agree. You know, I I, I think you ultimately have to think about, you know, can you can you hold these entities democratically accountable, or can you rein in their sort of worst tendencies rather than can you do away with them entirely? And this ties into, you know, I'm 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 probably persuaded that you know what is ultimately to bring the conversation full circle, kind of a deep state coup. It's bad. Things didn't really coup. It's, it doesn't matter. We're talking about after the podcast, uh, but but certainly certainly the unlawful bureaucracy having clear partisan preferences is potentially damaging, and the question is sort of what to do about that.
that's a little rambling. Why don't we? Why don't we? Do, why don't we do some recommendations? Aaron, two recommendation for our listeners this week. Sure. So I, I I mentioned it earlier, but I really do commend this essay, "How the Deep State Took Down Nixon" by Nathan Bukowski in Tablet. You may also want to check out Joff Shepard's both a 2013 Atlantic article, and then he has a much longer book summarizing some of the the revelations that have come to light since kind of the early 2010s about what really happened during Watergate and the prosecutorial and procedural abuses that took place. If nothing else, I think reading that stuff will make you wonder, should we really can, should we really trust the kind of established gatekeepers of information and in the narrative? Because it now appears that the a, a central a central almost article of faith of kind of the great and the good over the past half century is, if not totally false, then at the very least, far, far, far more muddy and complex than they made it out to be. That's my recommendation. I'm going to go ahead and plug two things that I've alluded to in the conversation. I think I've been alluded to the second, the first one, which is Beverly Gage's new biography of Jagger Hoover, G-Man, Jagger Hoover, The Making of the American Century, which I really enjoyed. I'm 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 taking book recommendations soon from Jacob because I I want more on this topic now. I also alluded to an essay by my Sedona's friend John Smith, P S M I T H, who writes at the Smiths P S M I T H S dot subsect dot com about Midian the Japanese miracle by Thomas Johnson, making many points that I just made. I recommend both. Jacob, do your recommendation for our listeners who work from others. What kind of recommendation am I supposed to be giving it? Just something related to our conversation? Yeah, really literally anything that you think our listeners would like. It can be, you should certainly recommend your essay, but if there are other yeah. things by other people, you should recommend them too. Well, I'll start with my own essay. Go to Tab of Mag and read that. And then read the essay I wrote on the fact-checking establishment in the United States, which you can also find on Tablet because it's very directly related to not only the, the disinformation or counter-disinformation complex, but also this thing that we were talking about, which is the erasure of any distinction between public and private and the ways in which large bureaucratic apparatuses can become, you know, take on or, or they present an air of objective, scientific, civic mindedness, but are basically just jobs programs and, and money grabs. The other book to come back to the, you know, the initial conversation is I'm going to get the title slightly wrong, but it's something, it's by Richard Gid Powers, and it's something like The History of American Anti-Communism. And it's a good read on anti-communism and also on, you know, I didn't know there had been a previous Red Scare in America prior to the 1950s. MacArthur, that was called the Red Scare and that there had been a previous Brown Scare in, in America. Right. So I, I had, so I learned a lot from that book. I think it's oh, very, very well written. He's a novelist, so he knows how to, uh, you know, he knows how to tell a story. And uh, yeah, those are the two that come to mind. Okay. Well, thank you, Jacob, for joining us on Institutionalized. Thank Thanks you a lot always, for having me. Thank you as always to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, disinformation you'd like to send our way, you can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. That's about all the time that we're giving to this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Saberia. You've been listening to Institutionalized. I hope you'll join us again soon. Bye.